Hi, I'm JJ Hornblass, and welcome to FinTech Unfiltered uh, from Bank Innovation. This is our weekly wrap on what is happening in banking innovation for the week of May 18, 2020. Before beginning, I want to thank Bank Innovation advertisers Mambu and Nutanix for their support. I am joined by Bianca Chan and Rick Morgan from the Bank Innovation team. Welcome. It is Friday, May 22nd, 2020. Um, a, uh, a big story that, that, that broke this week is on a new offering from Plaid, uh, which, which in and of itself was acquired for more than $5 billion by uh, Visa somewhat recently. Uh, Plaid Exchange. So what makes this offering from, uh, from Plaid um, more unique uh, or uh, important uh, from other, the other development portals that have been, uh, that have been made uh, available from some of the other fintechs? Yeah, I can take this one. Um, a couple of things that kind of stood out to me First was just the size of the network. There's like more than 10,000 financial institutions on, on Plaid's open banking network with more than 3,000 fintechs. So just the sheer kind of exposure that, um, you know, financial institutions that sign on to the program would receive, I think is notable. Um, a little bit of background on the platform. It's essentially this like, it's kind of interesting. It's this turnkey solution where basically financial institutions can jumpstart, uh, you know, like an API kind of framework, like that would facilitate open banking, um, which Plaid throughout their kind of research and development spoke with more than 100 banks and, and credit unions. And um, apparently a project like this, like to kind of stand up an API framework takes somewhere between three to four years, 10 to 20 million per year, which is a huge investment. Um, and with that in mind, the interesting thing as well is I spoke with um, their global head of policy who said that they're not going to let price be a barrier to financial institutions that want to sign on to the program. Being that if you know, you're a small community bank and you don't really have the funds or the resources to kind of um, you know, pay <laughs> to join or to sign on for this uh, plat exchange service, they'll give it to you for free, he said. Which is yeah, so I saw that. Uh, I mean, you know, when you're talking about Plaid now, now you're talking about Visa. I mean, there's got to be a catch in this, Bianca. Yeah, yeah, you would think so, right? So one thing that um, John did say was that it's self-serving, right? So the more financial institutions that they bring on, the better it is for Plaid. The more robust their network is, and so that's the main motivator he said and it's not doesn't necessarily have to be a, a revenue generator or uh, you know so pretty interesting it was interesting that uh plaid disclosed uh, uh told you uh, when you were when you were reporting the story that uh fintech app usage has climbed mm -hmm. by more than 72 percent in the last three months is that number right yeah, that's the number he told me. So I got to assume that he's not lying, right? Um, which kind of makes sense because I guess people are at home now. Maybe they're kind of exploring more fintech apps or maybe they're just, that's simply the only way that they can kind of do their banking is through these digital channels. 
Rick, have you seen this in any of the other fintechs you've talked to or any other any other folks that, you know, this kind of level of usage or is it unique to, and for, by the way, Bianca, this was Plaid usage or just overall fintech app usage? Not Plaid usage. I think it must be the fintechs on their platform that they're seeing the traffic. I, I see. So a general, a general sampling, a, a pretty wide sampling of fintechs. I mean, have you... Have you heard such numbers like this, Rick? Yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of, you hear all these different numbers um, from all these different fintechs. I mean, they, some of them are claiming numbers. I've heard some crazy numbers. I mean, you know, again, it's hard to know if you don't like what? I mean, I don't I can't remember the, I remember I saw a 300% increase from uh, one company, uh, but you know, I hear, I've heard anywhere from like 35% increases to, you know, 300% increases, um, what, how, how they're measuring that, who knows? Um, we don't report on all of them. A lot of them are just pitches that I get. So um, it, it's hard to dig into too much of the details. But yeah, I think this is, this is a time when, because everyone's transitioning to digital, I think a lot of people are seeing a climb in, um, in, in usage and, and volume for sure. I mean, what that means in the long term, uh, if anything, I think remains to be seen. Yeah, there was that that notion um, that uh, that some banks are trying to do two years worth of digital strategy in the next two months because they have to. I, I mean, that seems both a, you know, a wonderful development on the one hand um, in the banking innovation community, but on the other hand, like awfully scary. Right. Well, you hear a lot, I think, I think PPP platforms are a really good example of this, where banks had to work quickly. You know, the red tape that was there before, the kind of checks, um, they were obviously put in place for a reason in the first place, but having to take those down, I think maybe changes, um, you know, like the benchmark for how products are kind of developed maybe in the future. But I'm curious to know what the consequences, if any, um, you know, what the consequences will be given that all this red tape and the checks were kind of pushed to the side for innovation's sake. I wonder, um, you know, what the outcome of that will be. Well, yeah, I mean, I think like you were saying, JJ, it is, there is something scary to it and, you know, no one really likes red tape. It's sort of a negative term, but sometimes red tape is there for a reason. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you can argue like, I mean, with the PPP, like you said, Bianca, I mean, JP Morgan Chase is getting sued because supposedly they didn't listen to the first come first serve rule and they just, you know, prioritized larger clients. Whether or not that's true, who knows, but a lot, and it's not just JP, I think a couple other big banks also were, were in that lawsuit as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there is something scary to the fact that, uh, that it seems like people are sort of accelerating all of their innovation efforts and who knows what kind of regulations might be getting overlooked in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, speaking of accelerating innovation efforts, Rick, what mm -hmm. is Barwick Bank and <laughs> why should we care about it? Uh, Barwick Bank is a tiny bank with uh, 15 million, I think, in assets right now. I, I looked up a picture of it and it's like this small. That's brick like building. in banking asset terms, Rick. That's like a quarter. Pennies. Yeah, no, yeah. that's not much. Uh, the town, it's a, it's a very small community bank that's in a town of five, no, sorry, 365 people. 
um, with no online presence. And so the 366th person ju just happened to be just out moved of town. Yeah, yeah. That, that, exactly. The sign, who knows how old that sign is. So yeah. um, the uh, it's a small, I mean, I looked up a picture of the place. It's like a small brick building with no windows, um, but it was just bought by the uh, this guy named Jim Banj. Um, and he's basically trying to do like like house flipping, but for a bank. Um, where they like give it a total digital makeover, um, you know, increase their digital presence, start getting customers outside of the Barwick community, start getting customers in Florida. Um, and he has goals to get it to about 500 million in assets, which again, not huge, but like massive compared to where they are now. So, um, so yeah, it's pretty interesting that he's basically doing house flipping, but for a bank. I mean, it's, it's certainly an auspicious time for it, you know, considering is, what's yeah. going on. And he, you know, he has a track record. He did it in the past. He started this bank called Reunion Bank out of nowhere and sold it for, I think it reached 350 million in assets before it was bought by another bank. So it's not, this isn't his first rodeo. He's a bank flipper. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had never heard of this before, but it's pretty interesting that he's doing it. It's a thing. But you got to think, like, we looked on Google Images. We saw what it looked like. Imagine how many other community banks we've never even heard of are like this, look like this, have, I just, I'm thinking about the potential, you know, it's kind of crazy to, I don't know. To, 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 that there's this opportunity there. I mean, I, yeah. I guess, I, I guess the, the notion of pursuing this right now makes a particular sense considering if, if the numbers that you're getting out of, you know, uh, apps through the, the plaid, uh, platform are right. I mean, this this massive growth, um, even among 365 uh, residents, you know, that could be significant enough for for the bank flip. Um, yeah. There's there's also this um, there's also seems to be some developments between uh, SME lenders and banks. And so what what's going on? behind the scenes there between those two populations of financial services enterprises. Yeah, well, it was really kind of underscored by the whole PPP process in that we know FinTech lenders um, like OnDeck, Bluevine, were not really permitted to participate in the first round. We saw a ton of small businesses get shut out. Um, and so that kind of revelation that once these fintech lenders were able to kind of join in on the second round, that second tranche, and serve a lot of these small businesses that weren't able to get served in the first round, is kind of, we've, it might signal this shift where small businesses kind of move more business to the fintech lenders who were able to serve them when in their, you know, arguably one of their biggest times of need. Um, I think... Bluevine has seen, has already heard from dozens of their new customers through PPP that you know um, that that their experience has been great and that they want to move over um, and you know screw the bank that I was with before because they really didn't help me when I needed it um, and that's actually kind of a, a trend that we've heard whether that's to fintech lenders or even just you know smaller community lenders and and um, banks but it it could also prompt what the lenders were, what these fintech lenders were saying on this roundtable I was watching was that it could prompt banks to um, have a renewed focus on fintech partnerships because the banks might not have the kind of investment dollars that they need to stand up these, you know, digital channels that 
that PPP has kind of, um, you know, created this need for, for these online channels for small businesses. And so they're thinking that there might be this surge or the spike in um, bank fintech partnerships later this year as banks kind of come to realize that, you know, instead of losing our customers, maybe we partner and maybe we, you know, fill that gap together. Right. And also uh, under uh, uh, particular time constraints. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, I mean, I think what, what you've seen through the PPP is that there was a massive uh, wave of um, small business loan origination through digital channels in a very short amount of time. And so, you know, that, that kind of expectation uh, is going to remain, you can't, you can't take that back. Right. You, you can't, you can't take, put the, what's that expression? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Exactly. Um, and so if there aren't digital origination capabilities mm-hmm. at, at certain banks, I mean, it, they've really got to get there. So that, that should be an interesting development to watch. Uh, there was a, a, a big story that you both uh, contributed to this week on RBC um, and uh, on its deep personalization uh, effort. What does deep personalization mean at RBC? Uh, yeah, I can start off on this. So RBC has um, a mobile app and they, they try to sort of rotate it around the customer as opposed to having a bunch of different apps for different customers. Um, so they have one for students, they have one for investing, they have one for small businesses. And this is all in addition to their normal retail bank app. Um, so instead of, you know, you have to download a new app if you want to have one for your kid or if you want to, uh, you know, do investing with RBC, um, you can literally just download the same app and sort of like it'll customize around you depending on what you want. Um, they also have Nomi, which is their digital assistant um, that, that uh, you know, offers spending analysis and budgeting and savings and stuff like that. So uh, they're really trying to create you know, no two app experiences are the same for any individual customer, or at least that's their goal. Um, and they are doing, you know, we, we thought that there was interest in they were doing this. And we talked to some analysts in the field that thought they were doing a pretty good job of it. Um, we talked to their, um, the tech vendor that runs their, their Nomi product, uh, Personetics and Personetics works with, um, Huntington, uh, us bank and a lot of other big names as well. So, um, it, it's a trend that, I don't expect to end with RBC, but they are kind of on the forefront of it right now. Nice. Um, Oh, sorry. I had something to add. Go ahead, Bianca. Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. No problem. Um, It's, it's interesting. I think like deep personalization, you could also, I've, I've also heard maybe a similar or similar theme, contextual banking, where they're kind of bringing banking to the customer and having the banking experience um, you know, revolve around the customer in their own life versus the customer having to, yeah, go to the investment version of RBC's app or go to, you know, the, the regular retail version or having to, you know, connect all these different parts of, of your financial life with the bank. I think the idea is that the bank wants to do that for you. So and it's this trend that we've seen. I think Wells Fargo is also kind of on this similar path of, of you know, contextual banking or deep personalization and I think it's kind of, an, it, I think it will require a shift in mindset um, for sure in the way that banks look to the outside like um, fintech ecosystem to facilitate that. Well, also the, the interaction protocols 
mm-hmm. um, are, are, are change, right? They're not necessarily uh, related to uh, perhaps a particular age mm-hmm. or a particular, I don't know, marital status or family status, but some sort of other context uh, that requires kind of a different mindset. So that's an interesting point, Bianca. Um, so looking ahead, um, it's there's got to be something PPP related because that's what we talk about week after week during this um, uh, pandemic crisis, which hopefully will come to an end soon. So what's coming up soon uh, on that front? Uh, well, obviously, the um, the question of the hour, the, the forgiveness process is looming closer and closer. So we're talking to some banks about, you know, how prepared are they for this forgiveness process? Obviously, the actual loan application process came with its fair share of hiccups, um, both from banks and from the SBA, process, uh, SBA portal itself. So um, were there any lessons learned and what's going to be different during the forgiveness process? And, um, you know, what's the forgiveness process going to look like? I mean, how, how far along are we in terms of hammering out the requirements? Well, the, if the origination process was stressful and disjointed, I've got to expect the forgiveness process to be, I was on a, I was on a briefing on, on the PPP forgiveness uh, you know, regulatory framework and so on. And I'd say about 50%, eh, 40, 50% of the forgiveness framework is, has question marks attached to it. They're not, not really sure what, what, whether, you know, about 40%, I'd say of the chart of the expenses are maybe, you know, there's uncertainty about around whether or not it will qualify. Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you, my bet is, is that they're going to push back those deadlines and probably pretty significantly, but you know, we'll see. Um, and uh, anything else? What's, what else is coming up next week, Bianca? Um, well, Bank of America just launched this, uh, this AI-backed self-investment platform. It seems to be an upgrade to their existing um, Merrill Edge self-investment platform. So we're going to be looking at that, getting a deep dive on like, the technology behind that and frankly why uh, and then also kind of looking at a there's there's a trend of b2b fraud um, and we're going to be hearing from wells fargo lead on that on the kind of the different technology that there's the trends and then also the technology that they're going to use to try to stem that tide thanks bianca and rick you know we have uh, just to point out to everyone we, um, we have set our dates for Bank Innovation Build, our next event, which is going to be September 9 to 10. We'll give everyone more information about that soon. Um, but in the meantime, thank you all for joining us and uh, wishing everyone a happy Memorial Day weekend. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Bianca. Thank you. Talk to you next week. All right. Thanks.